And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic Fernando Alonso claimed the record as the youngest winner of an F1 race when he stood on the top step of the podium at the 2003 Hungarian Grand Prix after a commanding performance from pole position that was a sign of what was to come in his career. Well, the first part of his career, at least. It was also the day when the World Championship appeared to be slipping through the fingers of Michael Schumacher and Ferrari as he came home eighth and a lap down, allowing title rivals Kimi Raikkonen and Juan Pablo Montoya to make up vital ground as they joined Alonso on the podium. I'm Glenn Freeman and joining me for this trip back to the day Alonso truly arrived as an F1 superstar are two men who were there that day, Mark Hughes and a very warm welcome back to Ted Kravitz of Sky Sports F1 pit lane fame. So Ted, as I said there, welcome back. Good to have you again. And I promise not to interrupt you at any point during this podcast to play any team radio. (laughs) Uh, In 2003, you were in the pit lane for ITV, of course. So when you think back to that sunny day in Hungary, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Yes. Well, hello, Glenn Mark. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me back. Yes, two seconds, Ted, has become um, a, <laughs> uh, a merch line that I wish I could do. But uh, unfortunately, probably some um, intellectual property issues with Formula One and with Sky would probably preclude me from doing that. But uh, yeah, so uh, uh, I mean, I remember it was um, a different Hungary uh, because it was the first time we turned up there and they completely changed the circuit. And this was a bit of a shock to everybody. Hungary had always been, at least since I'd been going there in the sort of uh, late 1990s, um, a really characterful Grand Prix with a with a proper unchanged since its debut in in the mid 80s uh, circuit. It was rough around the edges. There was lots of vegetation. There was some 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 stalls, some merchandise there. Well, not even merch. Well, the knockoff merchandise stands. There were some um, some things for fans at the top end of the circuit that aren't fit for discussion on 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 family podcasts. Um, I think you know what they are uh, and. <laughs> There were some great, you know, food outlets. It was a real throwback. And for the first time we got there and the bulldozers had been out. They'd extended the first corner. The road in was slightly difficult. Bernie Avenue, which was the circuit, which was the road into the circuit uh, for only Formula One pass holders teams, drivers, the media, uh, etc., um, was slightly reprofiled. So it wasn't the Bernie Avenue that we knew about. Um, and uh, it was a bit of a shock, to be honest. Um, the new Hungaro ring, uh, but it was a it was a nice it was a nice day. It was a it was a good race, and uh, while it was important for something that that we saw change in front of our eyes in terms of the circuit, um, I think it became more significant that weekend in retrospect when, as you say, Glenn Fernando Alonso properly arrived, and it wouldn't become clear certainly to me till later on that season, maybe uh, his maybe 2004, 2005, when he started winning 
uh, the championships, or rather 2005, 2006, I should say, that the new man had arrived, that the baton had been passed, the natural successor. You know, in my lifetime, it was Prost. Then it was Senna, the best I'm talking about. Then it was Schumacher. And then it was Alonso. And it wasn't clear to us at the time, maybe it was to you, Mark, that it would be, that would be the succession. Uh, it would be Senna, Schumacher, Alonso. Yeah, I mean, I, to be honest, I had had a, a hunch because it, it, he came along at the same time as Kimi Räikkönen and Juan Pablo Montoya in the 2001 as rookies. So it was a fantastic rookie year, wasn't it? Um, but I always had a hunch that it was he was he was the one. Um, but you, you don't really know that until they get into a, a properly competitive car, and that Renault was close enough, certainly around this track, to allow him to uh, do his stuff. Um, and yeah, the thing that stands out to me, although the track had been upgraded, like you say, um, it was still a bit of a dust bowl when you went out there. It's still, it's still, you know, you're out there and among the lizards and the dust. And, and I remember doing trackside and, and watching, watching Alonso and watching truly actually his teammate in the Renault. And they were just totally different in how they were driving the same car. And, um, Yana was driving it like a classic fast F1 driver, all precision and high entry speeds. Whereas Alonso was just monstering it, throwing on the steering lock, getting super early on the gas. And it was how he got the best from what was quite an unusual car, which we'll talk about a bit later, what was so unusual about the car. But yeah, that's that's my abiding memory of that weekend, just a stark contrast between these two drivers um, in the same car. The emergence of the Fernando Alonso style. And uh, it's a shame those knockoff merch stands aren't still there. I reckon they'd sell a two seconds Ted t-shirt and uh, <laughs> maybe give you a cut. <laughs> <laughs> No questions asked as to who actually owns the internet intellectual property. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's what we need. They can yeah. pay you in cash on the way out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in forints. Excellent. <laughs> yeah, nice. For, for this episode, we also put the opening question to the Race Members Club. So thank you to everyone who responded to that. Hugh Douglas said his main memory is Alonso bolting off the line, running off into the distance and making everyone else look a bit average in the process. Justin Marshall said... Uh, Mark Webber moving up to second from a third place start and then watching as the laps ticked over and hoping to see his fellow Aussie get a first podium. Aidan Dulohari says uh, it's got to be Alonso lapping Michael Schumacher and Yanis van der Waal picks Michael Schumacher arriving in the pits with his car engine off. And I think that summed up how the day went for Ferrari. If you'd like to join the Race Members Club to get little perks like that and of course to get early access to new episodes which you can listen to ad-free Check out the-race.com forward slash members club for more details and to sign up. Let's not forget our beloved five-star reviewers as well. Thank you to Zebo Jojo, Matt Jacks 1977, JLR5678, Manmo Jack, Lavender Lloyd, and 0501-1994 for your reviews on Apple Podcasts. And at the end of the series, we'll once again be taking questions from you about the V10 era of F1. So get your questions in using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter or email BringBackV10s at the race.com. But now Hungary 2003. Coming into the weekend, Juan Pablo Montoya was the form man in F1. He'd finished on the podium in all of the previous six races, winning two of them to leave him just six points behind Michael Schumacher in the standings. Hungary would be the 13th race of the season and Schumacher hadn't won since round eight in Canada and back then he was 23 points ahead of Montoya. Kimi Raikkonen was hanging on in McLaren's updated 2002 car in third and heading to Hungary he was nine points behind Schumacher 
Ferrari tried to play down any concern about the title situation, with Schumacher saying he was conscious of it, but not frightened by the prospect of a tough weekend in Hungary, which I think everyone was expecting. And Ferrari's Ross Braun said Schumacher's experience of already winning five world championships by this point would help, as Raikkonen and Montoya hadn't been in a, an F1 title fight before. So, Ted, despite Ferrari's lack of momentum in this phase of the season, had Schumacher actually done quite a good job to keep Raikkonen and Montoya at bay up to this point? Or by Hungary, did it feel like a matter of time before he was going to be caught? Well, it was in the middle of another sort of year of, 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 of the Ferrari dream team. They were all still there. You felt the engine uh, was running. I mean, the metaphorical engine was running pretty well. And, um, you know, they got the new car, the 2003 GA. Uh, as I remember, it was a tribute to, the, to Gianni Agnelli, who died uh, previously, uh, quite soon before that car was given its name. So, yeah, the, the new car was obviously quite good. He'd had that brace of wins, the three wins. Imola, I think it was Spain, Austria, uh, in the middle of the season. They changed the points for this uh, year so that uh, there was only two points difference between a win and second. So maybe his advantage wasn't as much uh, as it would have been had it been the 10 points and then the six for second. But I don't think there was any issues about, you know, Ferrari being worried. Um, clearly, McLaren had problems with their new 2003 car that hadn't turned up, but Kimi Raikkonen was doing quite well. David Coulthard as well had won the first uh, Grand Prix in Australia. So I think it was okay. I think they were probably a little bit worried about Montoya and Ralph Schumacher. But as much as the Williams coming into itself with the BMW engine, it was pretty clear from Ferrari's point of view that Ralph and Montoya, that explosive, you might be able to call it toxic relationship between them was just going to take points off each other. Whereas, you know, Rubens wouldn't win a race until uh, I think it was Silverstone. Um, was that the man on track uh, race? Yeah. The uh, the crazy priest, um, and which was a bit of a freak result. So they thought they, they had it more or less under control, Ferrari, which, of course, gave them a massive shock when uh, they were completely annihilated uh, on track in uh, Budapest. At the other end of the grid, Eddie Jordan was in dispute with his engine supplier Ford, and by extension, all of the F1 manufacturers over customer engine prices for 2004. Jordan said he believed privateer teams had been promised engine supply offers for 10 million euros, but now he said that different interpretations have been made on that. Jordan added, I fought viciously hard to achieve the Ford contract, and I won't give up on that easily. The affordable engines part is the concern, though. Do we want privateer teams or do we not? Jordan implied that the manufacturers had got together to agree on a higher price than 10 million, which Mercedes took issue with. Mercedes motorsport boss Norbert Haug called those rumours ridiculous and strange. And Norbert added, the figures last year were close to 30 million. And if we achieve half of that now or a reduction of 10 million, that's a great achievement. Eddie Jordan added in his book that Ford had put its fellow manufacturers in a captive position by threatening to pull out of the Grand Prix World Championship group, which was put together as an alliance between the manufacturers, if Ford wasn't allowed to exclusively supply all of the privateer teams on the grid through Cosworth. So, Mark, what did you make of all this? Were the little guys like Jordan getting messed around by the manufacturers? Well, like everything in F1, it's that conflict between economics and competitive ambition. And um, yeah, at this stage of F1's evolution and pretty much the rest of the Eccleston era, really, there was a big mismatch between manufacturers and privateers. Now, there'd been a, 
a downward pressure applied um, onto the manufacturers of the, the the price that they could charge, and that that had been a sort of a bit of horse trading between them and the FIA. But the engine manufacturer was still trying to maximize their profits on engine sales to offset the cost of their own teams and also to recoup the R&D cost creating these engines incurred, which the independents didn't, you know, they, they didn't have to get involved in. And so Mercedes, BMW, Ferrari, Honda, Ford, whose official team was Jaguar, they would have been implying an upward pressure on the going rate. And the privateers weren't politically powerful enough to counter that. And this was... Eddie Jordan's way of, of trying to do that by bringing it out in the open in a press conference. And Jordan were operating right on the margins of financial feasibility, and there, there had been for most of the history. And a difference of two or five million in engine costs could have been the difference between staying in the game and going under. So, yeah, I absolutely get Eddie's point. Now, unlike today, back in 2003, Hungary marked F1's return from a summer break rather than the beginning of it. And plenty of teams returned from a few weeks off track with driver deals for 2004 ready to announce. So let's get into those. McLaren were one of those teams, confirming David Coulthard would stay on for a ninth season in 2004, despite speculation that McLaren was trying to sign Juan Pablo Montoya. Coulthard said there had been rumours of drivers coming to McLaren throughout his time there. He name-checked Damon Hill, Jacques Villeneuve and Eddie Irvine. And he said there's always pressure to perform regardless of your contract status. He also said he was more excited for 2004 than he was about the rest of 2003, although he promised to support the team and Raikkonen in the championship. Ted, you mentioned earlier that DC won the season opener in 2003, but since then he'd slipped to a distant seventh in the championship while Raikkonen was clinging on in title contention. All these years later, we now know that Ron Dennis had swooped for Montoya in the summer of 2003 to pick him up in 2005. So was this extension for Coulthard just a case of keeping the seat warm for somebody else? Yeah, as it turned out, yes. And um, two things on this. It was very strange that we, you know, we thought there was this was going to be the first of of how F1 driver moves are going to be in the future, that they will be signed for not next year, but the year after. And there was this thought, oh, well, you know, that's what Ron's doing. That's what Montoya's doing. This is how it's going to be in the future. Actually, as various people, Sebastian Vettel, most recently, you know, uh, uh, lots of lots of people, actually the contracts don't really mean anything and you can uh, sign it for, for anything for whatever re- season you're going to do. Um, and uh, it hasn't worked out like that. But at the time it felt like, oh, right, okay, people are planning uh, for the future. And also the Coulthard thing, I mean, I was quite close to this because um, I was working for ITV at the time. Martin Brundle was obviously the uh, uh, commentator with uh, with James Allen after Murray Walker retired uh, in 2000 at the end of 2001 and um, Martin would always sort of have a sort of physical reaction when David Coulthard would either do well or badly because he was his manager and because he knew that if Coulthard continued to perform then McLaren maybe wouldn't need to look to Montoya for that extra bit of speed or whatever it is that they saw uh, in Montoya at the time and so when Coulthard won you know Martin was kind of hands together great you know the deal's on fantastic we're going to sign it which of course as you say uh, they did but as as Coulthard started to sort of fade uh, later in the season faced with Kimi who was just outpacing him Martin used to grimace when Coulthard turned into a uh, turned in a bad performance and you know I think they just about got the deal across the line but they knew that Montoya was interested in McLaren because he wanted more money he resented the fact I think that Ralph was on a 
pretty big wage that Willy Weber had, uh, had, uh, had negotiated for him, and Montoya was on a fair bit less than Ralph. Um, and uh, Montoya just wanted, well, it seems ridiculous to suggest it now, but he thought McLaren would be a good home for him, which of course it turned out really not to be. But uh, yeah, he was sort of preening himself to be a different Montoya and saying, look, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely McLaren's cup of tea. Seems weird now, doesn't it? I think it seemed weird at the time. I think the only two people who thought that could work were Montoya and Ron Dennis. Um, another team that announced an unchanged lineup for 2004 was Renault, which was keeping Fernando Alonso and Jano Trulli together. Renault said a stable driver lineup was key as it continued to build up its competitiveness. And team boss Flavio Briatore said Alonso and Trulli gave the team the perfect balance. He said he also said Alonso had more than justified the faith Renault showed in him during his first season of racing for the team. And he said Renault had already achieved or exceeded all of its goals for 2003. Remember, this is before the team had won a race that season. Briatore said Renault was planning to take another step forward in 2004. At this stage of 2003, the team was fourth in the constructor standings, 51 points ahead of the rest of the pack behind, but still nearly 40 points behind the big three of um, Ferrari, Williams and McLaren. Mark, prior to winning in Hungary, which we'll obviously come to later, how did you judge Renault's upward momentum at this stage? We'd seen the kind of low fuel pole positions and some podiums. Did they still have a long way to, did it feel like they still had a long way to go before they could join that elite group in front? Uh, they did, but they had very particular traits with that car. So when you were looking, once they became apparent early in the season, how good its traction was, um, when you're looking at the tracks that would, it was going to go well, Hungary did mark itself out. You thought that thing is going to fly around the Hungara ring and uh, that proved to be spot on. Um, but they, they, it's also clear they were on a very good trajectory from the disastrously uncompetitive 2001 car. And, and it was the oddball design of that car that had a wide-angle V10, which ended up needing to be beefed up and to have its revs restricted to keep it in one piece, which put the team on a path which would ultimately lead to those 2005 and six titles. And putting extra weight in the rear, which was forced upon them in 01, turned out to work brilliantly well with the Michelin constructions, giving it fantastic traction. And then they re-optimized the torque curve around reduced maximum revs and that brought gains in fuel consumption therefore how light the car could be at the start of the race and how tractable it was at lower revs which worked hand in hand with a great attraction to give stunning starline performance also because you have to match the aero distribution with the weight distribution there wasn't the same requirement to get massive aero load on the front which was very much the aero limitation of that time so they could have a very aero efficient car so they kept those traits even with the much better cars of 2002 and 3 and it was almost a given at the start of any race they would make up one row from where they'd qualified um, and it was a unique technical philosophy and it was so it was interesting because they weren't just trying to do the same but better than the top teams which is always a very big ask they were instead doing something different and that made its ultimate potential unknowable but exciting and you could see this progress were, were being made each each consecutive season Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
you can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The driver market wasn't all just teams retaining their lineups. Despite winning a race early in the year with Jordan in the Brazilian Grand Prix, which we've covered previously, Giancarlo Fisichella was looking for a way out and he found it with Salva. Peter Salva said he'd been an admirer of Fissy Keller's for years and had tried to sign him before, so he's pleased to finally get a deal over the line this time. Fissy Keller said his ultimate target was to land a drive with one of McLaren, Williams or Ferrari, but while none of those teams had a seat available, he felt that Salva was the next best option, citing its Ferrari engine deal and its state-of-the-art wind tunnel, which of course had been paid for with the money raised by releasing Kimi Raikkonen to McLaren at the end of 2001. As for Jordan, Eddie Jordan wrote in his book that he felt Fissy Keller had decided he was treading water with Jordan and he was determined to switch teams. Eddie also said Fissy had grown up since his previous stint with the team in 1997 and he'd become harder. Ted, after so many years by this point of dragging decent results out of midfield cars, do you think Fissy Keller's stock in F1 was still high at this point or had it started to wane? I thought you were going to say, why did he just go from another midfield car to another midfield car? Um, <laughs> uh, I think it was high-ish. I think it was ambitious of him to think that a Sauber drive would lead directly uh, to Rubens Barrichello's seat um, at Ferrari, or whether he thought that Michael Schumacher was uh, eventually going to leave the team. There hadn't really started to be the, the rumours of... Um, uh, disquiet between Luca de Montezemolo and Michael Schumacher as yet in 2003. So it's pretty unlikely that Schumacher was going to move over. But yeah, maybe Fiskella thought that uh, inevitably an Italian driver ending up at Ferrari uh, was a good thing for him. The rest of us thought it was never going to happen because Fissi wasn't really probably very suited uh, to being a works Ferrari driver. But a, a, a probably a, a sensible move. The, the, the love affair with Jordan had started to wane. Giancarlo had stopped saying that he was very happy very often. Um, obviously, there was the there was the win in Brazil, and then the uh, that sort of carried on. It felt like he won Imola as well, even though uh, he didn't. It was just the handover of the trophy. But I won't forget that picture of EJ, Fissi, Kimi, and Ron on the main start finish line handing over the trophy. Yes, yeah, sorry about that. With the FIA sort of crying in the corner about how they got the, the calling of that race so wrong. Um, 
I think it was about right. He needed a change, but um, I'm not sure he was really going to get it uh, at Sauber. And, um, but it would at least eventually lead to, um, to some more uh, race wins back at Renault. So, yeah, I guess it was a, a, a sensible step, if not really a step up. Another likely change in the driver lineup seemed to be brewing at BAR, where Jacques Villeneuve, the man who the team was built for initially in 1999, appeared set to lose his seat to Takuma Sato. Sato was spending 2003 on the sidelines as BAR's test driver after racing for Jordan in 2002, and it was known that Honda was pushing for Sato to get a race seat for the following year. Villeneuve's position within BAR had been weakened since David Richards replaced Jack's manager Craig Pollock as team boss, Villeneuve claimed that the tough years at BAR had done some damage to his reputation. Richards increased the speculation that Sato would get the drive when he said BAR wouldn't announce its decision until the Japanese Grand Prix at the end of the year, although he said the lineup would be sorted behind the scenes before then. Of course, we now know Sato would get that drive, and Villeneuve later explained that it was pretty simple given that he was out of contract and teammate Jensen Button wasn't, so it had to be him that was replaced. Amid speculation about Villeneuve's future, his old rival Michael Schumacher was asked if Jacques could be an option for Ferrari, to which Michael responded, I don't see any seriousness in that. I think we want to improve our situation. Ouch. Mark, um, had the Villeneuve-BAR relationship run its course by 2003, or do you think that without the intervention from Honda to take Sato, could Button and Villeneuve have formed a strong partnership with that great BAR in 2004? Well, Glenn, you're, you're suggesting the answer in your question. We, we, all, yeah. <laughs> we all know how much of a JV, JV fan you are. Um, and I feel like I'm under... I'm reining it in. I'm trying <laughs> I, to I, feel like, I still feel like I'm under pressure here to agree. Um, but Tell me you did one races in 2004. Come on. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I think JV was already on the downward slope of his abilities uh, by then. And Jensen had come into what was very much his team and just blown him away straight away. Um, that and Jack's fractious relationship with the new team of management, who had inherited Jack, uh, meant they'd did much rather strengthen ties with Honda than by taking on their favoured son than repairing a lost cause with Jack. Really, I think, um, yeah, there wasn't. It was a dead end that one, as far as I could see. Oh, let's move. Let's move on. Uh, oh no, we're going to talk about Villeneuve again. <laughs> um, in the summer of 2003, he gave an in-depth interview to Nigel Roebuck in Autosport, where one of the many outlandish things he said was that F1 should get rid of the mirrors on the cars. Villeneuve said, "I'm serious. If you don't have mirrors, you cannot block. In a race situation, it would be ten times safer without mirrors. You just mind your own business, like the motorbike guys do. You have mirrors in your road car, so it must be safer, right?" But on the road, you're trying to get out of people's way. In F1, mirrors are not used to get out of people's way. They're used to block them, and that's the wrong usage of the mirror. Everyone laughs, but if you think about it, it makes sense. So, Ted, think about it. Does it make sense? <laughs> I tried to think about it. And, you know, I tried to think about I tried to picture uh, this interview with, uh, with Nigel Roback and Jack Villeneuve. And, and you know what? I was kind of surprised that was the least outlandish thing that, uh, that Jack could have suggested <laughs> that um, would have appealed. I can imagine Nigel sitting there, you know, cigarette in hand, you know, thinking, do you know what, Jack? I think that's a great idea. And because and, and, when you're interviewed by people, especially with Jack when he was being interviewed, 
by Nigel Roebuck. He would have known the history yeah. and the reverence for his father that Nigel had, obviously. Um, and uh, he would have thought, you know what, I, I'm going to say some things that you might agree with me with, Nigel. I think I'm going to suggest that we go back to, you know, tiny wing mirrors that we used to have on cars in the 70s that they never worried, worried about having to get out of people's way then. Um, so maybe there was a bit of sort of empathetic thought and a suggestion there. Um, but also I can, I can imagine, I'm going to stick up for Villeneuve here. I think he was, he was still um, a relevant person in, in Formula One. You know, whenever you went to see him, whenever I went to interview him, you could ask him absolutely anything. And you know that he, if he was prickly about it, he'd sort of shrug his shoulders and say, well, that's ridiculous. You know, blah, blah, blah. You, could, you could ask him anything in the way that you couldn't ask, you know, certainly David Coulthard, anything at all, he'd get very prickly. Michael Schumacher, oh my goodness, you know, don't, don't even, you have to be very careful with what you ask him. Um, Kimmy, well, you could ask him anything, you wouldn't get a reply, uh, or not one that you could really hear. But, um, you know, Jack, you could ask anything. And I think in that way, he would give you an answer. He'd stare at you maybe through those magnifying glasses of his, and then he'd give a good grin at the end, like kind of the answer is, well, I know that's rubbish, you know that's rubbish, but it's probably going to make TV, which is what you want, and it's amused me for the last 20 seconds. So there you go, everyone's happy. So I can totally imagine not only the context in which he said it, but what he said at the time that he thought was uh, quite a nice, fun idea. That's a good point, actually. Back then when he was a driver, uh, you know, we've used all kinds of quotes from him, and, and even today he appears you know, in the, in the news cycle saying these things, and I think people maybe sometimes forget that he only says these things because he's asked about them. So to my knowledge, he's not walking up to any of you guys in the paddock going, oh, this thing that happened in the race, here's my opinion on it. Uh, can, you, can you write it for me? Oh, yeah. No, the opposite. I mean, he will only, he will only, he, he turns up um, certainly when he's guesting for either Canal Plus or Sky Italy or whoever he's working for uh, that weekend. He will turn up at the last moment. Um, you'll see him on sort of half, uh, half an hour before qualifying, uh, do his thing, drop his little pearls of wisdom or his little bombshells, and then uh, you won't see him for the rest of Saturday. He'll turn up almost a sort of James Hunt era, kind of, you know, turn up on Sunday morning. So, right, who's on pole then? You know, oh, him, he's useless. <laughs> say, say his things uh, and get away. But always with that smile, always with that little cheeky smile, uh, and uh, as if he knows what uh, what the game is and knows his place within him so yeah i'll always stick up for jack don't worry Glenn. hey ne ne never a dull moment uh let's let's move uh back into hungary 2003 then as ted mentioned earlier changes were made to the track in an attempt to make the racing better um because let's face it even back then or, or even more so than now back then uh this track had a reputation for overtaking being almost impossible so the start finish straight was extended and a new tighter first corner was created in the bid to give the circuit a, a genuine kind of breaking zone passing opportunity the twisty final sector was also simplified with what i can only describe as what was previously a, a squiggly section uh, before the penultimate corner replaced with a 90 degree right hander and a straight into the, the left right at the end Hopes still weren't particularly high in the paddock before this first race on the on the new layout. BAR technical chief Jeff Willis said he didn't think the braking area for turn one would be big enough. And he was one of several people to say the main problem in Hungary was still going to be how dirty the circuit was so you couldn't run offline. Mark Webber rather bluntly said it's not going to be any worse than it was before. While Ralph Schumacher said he preferred the previous layout as it was more interesting to drive. Mark, we've had this altered layout for, for two decades now in Hungary. Do you think the changes worked? 
it's odd because we had a continuation of several years of very routine Hungarian Grand Prix after this. Then all of a sudden we had a great race in 2009, a fight for victory between Hamilton and Weber. And since then, it's often produced fantastic racing. There was a great battle between Hamilton and Grosjean in 12, I think it was. I think it might be to do with hers, giving you the ability to get close at parts of the track you couldn't before with, with a you know power offset between the cars. Hamilton's win in 2009 was the first time an Urs car had won a Grand Prix. Uh, there was no Urs in 2010, and there was no real wheel-to-wheel stuff then. But the really great races started happening in 2014 with the full-on hybrid cars, and we had stunning races there in 14 and 15. You couldn't call it going in the last few laps. Um, 2019 was terrific too with that Hamilton on an extra stop chasing down Verstappen. So something changed between pre-2009 and after, and especially after 2014, which coincides with us and later the full-on hybrids. DRS came in in 2011, and we had dull races here with DRS, but without us, so I, I, I think it's us. Yeah, that's the interesting theory. Yeah, I don't think we necessarily head to Hungary with a, a sense of dread anymore, that it's going to be going to be dull. Now, Ralph Schumacher arrived in Hungary back in 2003, having just avoided a grid penalty that he initially picked up for causing a collision with Rubens Barrichello and Kimi Raikkonen at the start of the German Grand Prix. Williams appealed that punishment and after an appeal hearing where F1 race director Charlie Whiting called the team's argument, Williams's argument, that Barrichello and Raikkonen were in Ralph's blind spot, tenuous, but the punishment was still changed just to a fine. Williams also argued that Ralph didn't make an unfair move across the circuit before the first corner and because Barrichello's front wing hit Ralph's left rear tyre, Ralph was therefore clearly ahead and entitled to do what he did. The initial grid penalty was considered inappropriate and the FAA even recommended that the stewards reinvestigate the incident as accident data recorder information appeared to suggest Barrichello and Raikkonen might also share some of the responsibility for the crash. So this well and truly rumbled into the Hungary weekend. Ralph and Frank Williams were very grateful to the court for a fair hearing and Ralph said that while he agreed with the FIA's efforts to clamp down on dangerous driving, he felt this was a racing incident and he said sometimes from the outside it's difficult to judge these things. Ted, if you can remember this incident or if, you, if you've gone back and, and had a watch, what did you think of, of the shunt in Germany? Did Ralph deserve a penalty for the way he, he moved over a bit uh, at the start of Hockenheim? No, I don't think he did because um, it wasn't. Uh, it was a. It was a drift over, and then he held his line. You know what? I'm going to blame in this. I'm going to blame technology, and uh, I'm going to blame the inventors of the touchscreen because I think had we had the technology <laughs> that we have now, and uh, you know the internet and extra replays and every single camera angle on every bit of the car uh, being able to be seen and analysed by. Uh, Anthony Davidson, Karun Chandok, Paul DeResta, and everybody else who uses touchscreens in you television. Say Skypad, it's fine. Skypad, no, no, I like to call it a touchscreen. Um, the word is, yeah. Uh, it's, it's just, you know, you would have seen that Ralph goes off in Germany. He makes one move. Yes, he's covering it, but he, you would be, uh, have been able to see that he doesn't actually make a turn to the left. Yes, he's holding it. Yes, he's drifting. But it is just the sort of sandwich effect of the Ferrari and then Kimi around the outside on the on half of the, the little bit of the grass that comes together and sends Kimi into the into the tire barrier. So had we had a sort of touch screen at the time, had maybe the stewards at the time been able to uh, to have more information, camera angles, whatever, I'm not sure they would have given him uh, that uh, penalty, grid penalty. And I think it was 
a good call, possibly ambitious, but turned out well for Williams uh, to appeal that with all the money and attention and focus it would have done when, you know, they're approaching they're in a title fight. They didn't really need to do it. But um, uh, yeah, I think maybe also it had an effect on Montoya. If Montoya would have seen, well, hang on, look, Williams are doing all of this to sort of favor Ralph Schumacher and not get him a, uh, a, a, a grid penalty. Is that another sign that they're kind of thinking that that he's their man, even though uh, I'm the one uh, with more points. Because, um, of course, Ralph had won a couple of races going in uh, to that uh, weekend, even though Montoya had won uh, in Germany, obviously. So, yeah, I wondered whether it was a little bit of a, a, a sticking point from Montoya's uh, behalf, thinking, oh, you know, Ralph's, they're so keen to get poor Ralph off his grid penalty, but it worked. So good call from Williams. I blame mirrors myself. I think it was mirrors. <laughs> yeah, that was right. Knew it. I knew it. <laughs> Ralph and Frank Williams both um, expressed their gratitude to the FIA Court of Appeal for removing that penalty. Uh, Patrick Head was feeling a bit more punchy as, as ever, taking a swipe at Michael Schumacher's driving in reaction to, to all of this. Patrick said, you could say that there are certain people quite close to Ralph Schumacher who have made movements that I've seen this year that I have, I thought have been extraordinary. If I was a driver, I'd be saying I've watched Michael Schumacher going offline and I've seen what he does and I've seen what happened to Ralph and I don't really know what I'm allowed to do. Patrick then specifically referenced Schumacher's famous chop on Fernando Alonso at the British Grand Prix a few weeks earlier. And Patrick said he was told that Schumacher got away with that because it didn't result in any contact. So there wasn't an accident to investigate. And, uh, and more modern fans of F1 think that the FIA uh, has only become a problem in recent years. Mark, did Patrick have a point amongst all of that? In this era, was Michael getting away with more than most could? Yes, I, th I would say that's that's accurate. Um, we, we we later saw regulations being rewritten in response to some of the things that Michael used to do, the, the one move rule, the leave one car width rule for your opponent, etc. Michael looked for advantage wherever it could be found, and he approached the sporting regulations just like an aerodynamicist approaches the technical regulations. If there was a loophole there, he would use it, and uh, that hadn't ever been the, the the norm before. That's not how drivers approached. The, the the sporting regs and um, yeah he did and it, it, it caused a sort of a, a, almost a culture change really and it, the, the FIA had to respond or try to respond by you know introducing new rules but of course the problem with that is you can never encapsulate every single infinity of circumstances in a rule and uh, you end up sort of tying yourself down around in knots but uh, that's a different uh, subject. Once the track action got going, the big story early in the weekend was a huge crash for Jordan's Ralph Furman in practice. Furman's car lost its rear wing on the uphill run to turn four or five, depending on how stupidly you're naming the corners at the Hungara ring. And he lost control before the corner, going into the barriers backwards in a massive impact. Furman spent Saturday night in hospital, but returned to the track on Sunday on crutches due to a cracked heel. And he also suffered a concussion. Legendary F1 doctor Sid Watkins said the foam around the cockpit and the hands device had played a big role in protecting Furman. Furman said all he remembered from the incident was a sudden feeling of the car speeding up just before it speared off track, but he didn't realise that it sped up because he'd lost his rear wing. He said the next thing he knew he was in the ambulance and the fact that he couldn't remember anything of the accident meant he probably wouldn't have any problems getting back into a car. 
He also said, it's the sick big mechanical failure which has caused an accident for me this year. One too many, I think. It's always been something different and I think I've been a bit unlucky. The team are great. I've got no complaints. Now, as most of you will know, here at the race, we work with Gary Anderson, who was in his second stint at Jordan in this era. So we've got Gary's thoughts on the accident and if Furman was just unlucky to have so many failures. The basically the rear wing itself separated itself from the what was the beam wing or what's called the beam wing, um, which is the mounting points for it. The problem appeared to be that the there's a, a, a metal diaphragm in the end of the in the end of the beam wing, and basically it hadn't been fitted correctly. Um, it just had come become delaminated, and you know that was it. So we took the beam wings we got, we put some mechanical fixings into it instead of just a, a glue fixing, and we uh, wrapped the end of the wing a little bit in carbon to 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 stiffen that bit up just in case it was flexing a little bit too much and delaminating because of the flexing. Um, and you know, yeah, it was. It's just every time you go out, you recognise something. You know, all these parts are designed. Um, to you know, tenths of a millimeter, blah blah blah. But then you got a bloke making them somewhere along the line that that has to be robust enough to withstand all the loads plus a safety factor. And and sometimes that's the area where, where it goes a little bit wrong. It's not always design that fails. It's just uh, lack of lack of a safety factor in the design because of the situation we had, and because it had a few accidents. He was actually getting all the new parts you can it's like anything you can dig a hole for yourself by trying to get out of it you're doing the right thing by fitting up all new stuff and the new stuff is where the problem arises so it's uh you never it's never an easy thing to do you sometimes you can't you can't uh you can't get out of that hole because you just keep digging it deeper um i think ralph got caught up in that a little bit because we were feeling the same pressure within the team that you know we needed to give them a better car a more reliable car but um as i say in trying to do that sometimes you end up Digging the hole a bit deeper for yourself. Mark, we don't get many chances to talk about Furman here on Bring Back V10s. Do you think he got a fair crack at F1 in 2003? I think he deserved his chance in F1. He achieved good success in Japan and on the categories on the way up to there. Um, but did he do anything in that rookie season which demanded he stay? He was completely eclipsed by Fisichella. And even if you've got safety concerns, which are inevitably going to detune you a little bit, a strong rookie always has to show the potential to be a star. Just just the odd performance, which gives you a clue that the potential is there. And we didn't really see that. He was a fully competent Formula One driver, but he didn't, by performances, demand a permanent seat there. So, yeah, I think um, he, he, got a, he got a fair crack and he, he deserved his crack. Let's move into qualifying then. And Alonso took his second pole of the season, but we'll talk about his weekend in more detail shortly. Behind him on the grid was Ralph Schumacher in second. Very relieved not to have that grid penalty. Mark Webber's Jaguar in third, while Montoya was the leading title contender, sorry, Ralph, in fourth. And we'd uh, and he'd have been pleased to see Raikkonen and Michael Schumacher back on the fourth row. Schumacher and Ferrari bemoaned a surprising lack of grip for his performance. While at McLaren, Ron Dennis speculated that lots of teams had gone for light qualifying fuel loads to get themselves up the grid at a track where overtaking is so difficult. And he expected the order to shuffle around on race day. We're going to focus on Montoya here, though, because he said some interesting things over this weekend about trying to change his approach to fight for a championship. 
He said he could have got more out of his car in in his one-shot qualifying lap if he had to, but he'd been conservative because of the nature of the new qualifying format for this year and the price you could pay for making an error. Montoya said, The thing about qualifying now is that so much is at risk. If you're going to make a mistake, make sure it's a small one. I'm fighting for the championship and the most important thing is starting ahead of Michael. I'm trying to play safe. I admit that it's hard to to play safe because my foot just wants to stay down all the time. In the past, I took risks and sometimes it didn't pay off. I'm trying to stay focused and do things correctly, trying not to make mistakes. Ted, you said earlier that the idea of Montoya going to McLaren didn't feel very one Pablo Montoya. Does the yeah. idea of trying to feel or trying to play safe not feel very Montoya either? Yeah, no, it really doesn't. Um, <laughs> I'm reminded uh, of. Is it a famous phrase? I think it's by the poet Maya Angelou, who says, uh, when a man shows you who he is the first time, believe him, believe him then. <laughs> and I, you know, if somebody shows you who they are, uh, they'll show you quite soon and they won't change. That will be the person. Um, and so it was with Montoya. I mean, I think it's, it's probably uh, the right thing for him to do. If he can play it safe. I don't think play it safe meant change anything in his driving style or um, anything that he was naturally not able to do, but just have an eye on the consistency that he knew would be important. He wasn't to know what was to come with the Michelin tires, with the tread width and the sidewalls, but he knew that if he could just outscore, and I don't think he could imagine Michael Schumacher would have as bad a Hungarian Grand Prix as, as it turned out to be, but if he could just keep knocking in the points, then, as you say, he had probably his best chance to be world champion. Uh, obviously, a championship um, in F1 that never happened. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Williams's good qualifying was undone as soon as the lights went out when Ralph and Montoya plummeted down the order with terrible getaways, not helped by both being on the dirty side of the track. And things got much worse for Ralph when he spun at turn two, so the Williamses ended the opening lap 8th and 18th. At the front, Alonso was away cleanly and Weber had slotted into second. As was probably expected, Alonso and Weber were the first front runners to pit on lap 13, but by the time they did, Alonso was more than 20 seconds clear of Weber, who was holding up the rest of the field. Alonso was asked about the first stint after the race, and he said, In the first two or three laps, I had Mark Weber in the mirror, and on the eighth or ninth lap, I asked the team, Where are the others? And they told me 15 seconds away, and I thought, Oh my gosh. Alonso said he pushed hard in the first stint and then controlled his pace from there. And apart from Raikkonen leading for one lap when Alonso made his first stop, Fernando was never headed for the rest of the race. Mark, how decisive was Weber's role in Alonso's win? Do you think Fernando could have won if some of those faster chasing cars hadn't been bottled up behind the Jaguar in the first stint? Oh, I think um, Mark's uh, position was a crucial part of, of Fernando's win. The, the, the Jaguar's qualifying pace was a, about partly how good Mark was in one lap qualifying and the great feel he had for the grip of the tyres just to nail them on that instantly. 
but it was also about how the Jaguar put so much energy into the tyres, which was why it was relatively poor in the race. It could never race anywhere near where Weber used to qualify it. So for Alonso, getting Weber in between himself and the others on a track that he couldn't pass was absolutely perfect. His, his real competition was being held at Jaguar speeds for most of the first stint, and that easily overcame the penalty of his early low fuel stop. Um, whether Alonso would have won if Montoya or Raikkonen had emerged out of turn two behind him, I'm, I'm not so sure. Renault's strategy with that early stop was one of the big talking points of the weekend. The team had been the first to exploit this new rule about qualifying on your race start fuel load, which gave Alonso his first career pole back in Malaysia. And in Hungary, despite being the first car of note to pit in the race, he'd obviously turned this strategy into victory here. Team boss Flavio Briatore said, Renault proved people wrong that assumed they'd gone light on fuel just for the glory of Saturday. And Pat Simmons said the result vindicated our decision to come into this race with an aggressive frame of mind. Speaking about Alonso's first win in 2020, Simmons called it one of Alonso's best drives, adding that it was such a mature drive and it would have been easy to throw away and lose it. Now let's hear from the man himself. Alonso recently spoke to the race's Scott Mitchell about his first win. And here's what he said about it. I think looking back, it was very important. At that moment, it didn't feel that important. Um, we qualifying with a little bit less fuel than the others, just we wanted to, to be in front. And then, um, yeah, I remember quite well, uh, Mark uh, had a good start and slowed down a little bit the field. Uh, and then we were just performing the pit stops and we went into a rhythm that uh, the car was, was flying into the race and we lapped Michael. At that time it was not a big thing, but then it became more and more uh, a thing, you know, when, uh, when you have the media involvement at the end of the race. But uh, yeah, obviously I was very young. Uh, for me it felt like a normal step in my career. Mm. I didn't feel that special. I said, yeah, I came in Formula One. Yes, I have my first podium. That yes, this was my first victory, but if it was not hungry, I thought that it was a matter of time that I will get it. I, I was not aware of how difficult it is to win a Formula One Grand Prix or how difficult it is to win a, a championship. At that time, you are very young and you are not, you know, realizing many things that are going around you. We were lacking some power that year. We have a very wide engine, uh, V engine, and uh, we knew that the center of gravity was lower and and Hungary or the street circuits were good for us, also Monaco, uh, Malaysia was good as well. And we knew that it could have a, could be a, a good weekend for us, but maybe top five. We, we never thought at that point to, to be a, a winning material. Good stuff from Fernando there. Ted, is it over-egging this win to suggest this was the moment the Alonso-Renault combination announced itself as the genuine coming force in F1. You were down there on the ground that day. Did it feel like a significant moment at the time? Yes, I think it did. I, I don't think it's overhanging it at all. And, and by the way, the, the sort of bromance between Fernando and Mark Webber uh, exists to this day. They really do like and admire each other, don't they? It's, uh, it's Mark just considers Alonso the absolute uh, well, he'd probably call it the Mutz Nuts, mate. But uh, yeah, and I think uh, uh, Alonso has a lot of respect for Weber as well. That's that's been going a long time. No, I think I think this was a team that had matured technically, emotionally through image as well. Um, you know, maybe gone was the sort of 
mild seven bandana and the sort of messing around that Flavio liked to do. Um, and it was starting to get a bit more serious. I mean, Fernando still had that little under bottom lip beard that uh, whatever you call it, um, the, uh, the D'Artagnan, I think maybe it's called. Um, but uh, it was starting to mature. Fernando was starting to mature. It was, a, it was an amazingly, brilliantly controlled, uh, aggressive and controlled uh, drive. And he dominated really um, the race. But also let's bear in mind, this was a team ready to, to, to be delivering now. Renault had, been, had owned Benetton, taken over from them for a few years now. They had Flavio at the helm, um, Bob Bell, Pat Simmons, Steve Nielsen, you know, big names of today, once we look back at it, um, who were actually uh, there at the time and to do with the, uh, the engineering of the car. They had support from France. Uh, Patrick Faure was there, sort of being that link between Renault, France and Viry Chatillon. It was all starting to get very serious. And um, yeah, I think they were ready to go. Patrick Faure, by the way, is sort of uh, a long time um, play on words with when he was, whenever he's replaced that next person, that big sort of Renault person uh, link between the, the Renault France and, and Enstone becomes Patrick five. And then his, uh, that replacement became Patrick six and then uh, seven, Patrick seven. And so much so that Alan Permain, when he met the new person, I think it was around sort of, you know, when Eric Boulier was starting to be at the team, he said, oh, I assume you're Patrick eight then. <laughs> and um, they didn't know what he was talking about. I think between Alan Permain and James Allison, it was always a, quite amusing that after Patrick four, there would be uh, several more sort of big Renault honchos. But I think it underlined, you know, they were getting some money from, from Renault, weren't they? And they were sorting themselves out. And it was, um, it was the start of what we saw in, uh, in 05 and 06. Akimi Raikkonen proved Ron Dennis's theory about race strategy somewhat right by coming through to take second, while Montoya claimed third despite a late spin and his teammate Ralph recovered from his own lap one spin to finish on his tail in fourth. Raikkonen and Montoya closed the championship battle right up with their podium finishes and uh, now two points covered them and Michael Schumacher who held on to the lead by the finest of margins after coming home a lapped eighth. More on that later. Montoya criticised Schumacher's driving on the opening lap, saying Schumacher threw his car at me completely when Montoya was on the outside of him at the first corner. But Juan Pablo took satisfaction from the fact that Michael only scored a point and he felt Williams clearly had the fastest car this weekend. But bearing that in mind, Mark, if the Williams was in, as, as good as Montoya said it was, is third place, even after a terrible start and a late race spin, is third place actually a poor result with the pace they had and with what was at stake and the opportunity in the title race. Yes, absolutely. The, the, the car's advantage here wasn't as it was at most other tracks as we run up to this race. Um, the, the Renault's traction ensured it was genuinely fast. It didn't get pole only because of the fuel load. It was generally competitive here with the Williams and McLaren, which were usually faster. But yes, as I said before, if Montoya had got out of turn two behind Alonso, I'm sure he'd, be, he'd have had the pace to use his longest stint to get ahead of him. And we'll stick with Williams uh, for the moment. Because Ralph charged from the back, uh, which included a brilliant surprise attack on his brother at the first corner, which prompted her Ferrari boss, John Tott, to show his sense of humour, uh, even on a terrible day for Ferrari. Tott was asked about Michael getting pounced on by Ralph, and he said, I think he was watching what was going on ahead of him and was taken a little by surprise, or maybe he just wanted to stop all the stories about his brother never passing him. Michael claimed that he didn't put up a fight because he knew Ralph was on a different strategy and would be pitting soon. Ralph said he was pleased with his recovery, 
but he felt that he wouldn't have been able to beat Alonso even with a clean race. He also said he now needed a miracle in the championship, sitting 14 points adrift with just 30 remaining. Given everything else that went on this weekend, Ted, do you think this is perhaps an underrated charge from Ralph? I, I feel like it wasn't often we got to see him race like this and certainly not put the kind of move that he did on Michael. It was. And I think, I, you know, I would, having watched that uh, turn two, one, two, three, turn three, where, where he sort of spun early on, there seemed to be a lot of dust there still. Maybe there was a lot of sort of construction dust from the reprofile turn one and two. Um, he was unfortunate to be shoved out there, as we've already said. And then it was kind of lazy spin into a terrible race time costing uh, accident. It was a good charge through. Um, it helped that... Uh, uh, he was on a, you know, in a different place than Montoya. He wasn't actually battling Montoya at the time. He was a different focus, as you say, on a different strategy. The tyres were working well for him, and he was a bit angry as well. Sometimes I always felt that when Ralph was kind of, you know, going to a sort of race with a bit of a nonchalant view, he'd be like, "Oh well, this is okay. You know, I can drive here. Oh, I've got a good result." But Ralph angry was a very formidable driver actually, and when he had a back, uh, his back to the wall, and, and an incident early spin like that. Sometimes that got the best out of Ralph, a curious driver sometimes. And I think Williams felt this as well, higher hopes than what it, uh, what it turned out. But um, I don't know, Mark, do you, do you remember a, a kind of cross Ralph could be quite a quick Ralph on, on the day? It was a good drive through. Yeah, I'd never really made that uh, correlation before, but you might be right. I, I, I do recall that he was, he could be devastatingly quick one day and pretty average of the next, and it didn't seem to be any rhyme or reason to it. Yeah. But yeah, it could, could could be. He was obviously never very angry when uh, when I was covering him in the DTM then, although uh, he did get a pole position at the Norris Ring one day. <laughs> Um, let's, uh, well, that's the most, that's the most comfortable of all comfortable, you know, places, <laughs> isn't it? Is to, is, to re, is to return to the German touring car championship. Uh, you know, all the events all being fated by the crowd, a big name in there. And, uh, having done a season of, 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 uh, DTM effectively when I did W series, I can imagine that that would have just been heaven on earth for Ralph. Uh, what was it? A one-day event? A two-day event? Yeah, I think they were two two-day events. Two days, um, yeah. And, it, and then when he got his pole position at Norris Ring, he stalled on the grid. So, um, right. short-lived, short-lived moment at the front. <laughs> yeah. uh, he got he got faster after I left. So maybe maybe I was the problem. Um, <laughs> let's get back to two thousand three F one. We've we've not touched on Ferrari too much. It's time to it's time to pick apart their disastrous day. The Bridgestone tires were off the pace, and Schumacher. Uh, even ran out of fuel in the pit lane as he came in for one of his stops. To make matters worse, Rubens Barrichello suffered a scary accident where he lost a wheel approaching the first corner, leading to a big shunt in a runoff area Rubens felt wasn't big enough for the new corner. Schumacher said everything that could have gone wrong went wrong today, and uh, therefore Ferrari had to be happy with one point. Obviously, this went down terribly, as you'd imagine, at the top of Ferrari with President Luca di Montezemolo letting rip. The day after the race, he said, performances such as yesterday's must not happen anymore. After yesterday's race, each and every one of us must rethink their approach and obtain perfection. This race is also mentioned in Ross Braun's book, although he mistakenly thinks it was the 2005 race where Michael actually finished second. Speaking about Schumacher getting lapped, Braun said, I came on the radio to Michael and said, you have to pull over because they are coming up to lap you. And Michael said, no, you're joking. This is ridiculous. 
Ross said it was pretty unusual for Michael to make those comments over the radio, but by this point he was so frustrated. Mark, despite Schumacher coming away from Hungary, still in the lead of the championship, just, was this perhaps the weekend that it dawned on Ferrari that this title could be slipping through their fingers? And if we can in some way, we'll briefly ignore what was about to happen with the uh, Michelin tyre controversy. Yeah, I think the um, the, the comments you reference from Luca de Montezamolo indicate that the, the pressure was very much from the top. And um, what subsequently um, came to be with, with, with the the the, the tyres is um, w- w- was probably initiated from there. Um, the dynamics of the title fight were really dictated by the tyre war between Bridgestone and Michelin. So they, they were in a tyre development war, but there were also types of track which suited the philosophy of one of them over the other. And Hungary was very much a Michelin track. So, yeah, I mean, in, in hindsight, you could be a lapped eighth one weekend and win from pole the next. It, the Bridgestones ran much hotter than the Michelins, and on tracks generating high tyre temperatures, Bridgestone were forced to run harder compounds, and it was very much a pattern, and Ferrari was the only quick team on Bridgestones. So, yeah, already there were mumblings about Ferrari trying to do something behind the scenes, which we'd see play out at Monza. Well, that was, that was going to be my next question, actually, to Ted. I know, Ted, when we discussed you appearing on this episode, you, you mentioned the, sort of the, the fallout began straight after this race that led to the tyre problems we'll cover, uh, well, the tyre controversy that we'll cover in more detail in the future. But were you, were you getting wind in, in the pit lane, in the paddock, that Ferrari and Bridgestone were maybe going to try to, to do something behind the scenes to change their fortunes? Were there any whispers in Hungary or did it all emerge afterwards? I think it did emerge afterwards. I wasn't aware because it was a very, very closed shop. Um, If it had been the other way around, you would have had a lot of people in McLaren briefing the media. You would have had, you know, the likes of either Sam Michael or Mike Gascoigne or people like that saying, oh, have a look at that Bridgestone tire wall. You know, there's a there's a scuff on there. What's that all about? Hmm. Um, Or you would have had some of the drivers. So it was all of the sort of very open and briefing teams with the exception of eddie jordan perhaps uh jordan who were who were on the michelin side and then very defensive and that helped them control the response to the to the bendy sidewalls and the and the too wide tire uh tread um whereas on the ferrari side all you had was bridgestone a very conservative reserved japanese company feeding back what i remember was very privately to Ferrari, which was, hang on, guys, I think we might have something here. Not only have we noticed these scuff marks, which seems that they should be leaning on the, or they could be leaning on the sidewalls more, but has anyone ever actually measured how wide their tire tread width is after the race? And then we get these little measuring devices with the, you know, hyper accurate um, metal edges. Um, And so, no, but looking back on it, I'm not surprised because clearly Bridgestone had been looking at this, but I think they'd been keeping it very confidential with the top levels of Ferrari and Michael Schumacher that they might have something in their pocket to protest about. Okay, and then back to Hungary 2003, Ted. I, I, I imagine Ross Braun would have been high on your list after the race for people you had to go and hunt down. What 
was the mood like at, at Ferrari? How willing was Ross to talk and what sort of vibe did you get from him? Was there a feeling that maybe this was a team who at last in the 21st century might be in trouble? Yeah, I mean, you, you're absolutely right. As a pit reporter, you have sort of set uh, a set pattern. These days, it's either Toto Wolff, um, uh, Christian Horner will often go uh, to the uh, to the presentation team, so I won't get talked to him, or to Steiner or Otmar Zafner. Um, back then, depending on who it was, Williams was always a strange one to go to. You could get Sam Michael, I suppose. You could get Patrick Head. Uh, if something big had happened, I guess you could ask for an interview with Frank Williams. But Ross was always willing to talk, to his great credit. So off the Ferrari pit wall, his two discarded banana skins on the carbon fibre desk, Jean Tot with pursed lips, uh, looking like he's chewed a wasp coming off the, the pit wall, dissatisfied, um, various Ferrari engineers, you know, looking embarrassed with themselves. But Ross would always calmly take his headphones off and act as though nothing had happened. It was, there was, you can't really, couldn't really tell that he'd had a bad day. And I'd go up to him and effectively, I think I remember saying, you know, what on earth happened there, Ross? Um, and he'd give some very cogent and accurate uh, uh, description of how uh, the race had got away from them. The tyres hadn't helped. It was a day for Michelin. The others were faster. And uh, we have got to respond. And then he'd give you that kind of look. He'd nod. He'd smile through those eyes and the, the, the half glasses and uh, as if he, he would not really show any, he didn't really show any particular emotion like he was very annoyed about the day when Michael Schumacher got lapped and we saw the emergence of the person that would eventually, eventually replace Michael Schumacher as the fastest man in Formula One, but he never did. It was the same kind of emotion. Um, but yeah, we weren't to know what he had up his pocket and what Bridgestone had up in their pocket for the next race at Monza. Yeah, and uh, we've mentioned that a few times at Monza 2003. We will do a full episode on that and the tyre controversy in the future. We get plenty of questions, people asking when we're going to do it. Uh, I promise it's coming, not in this series, in a future series. Uh, Mark and Ted were both there, so perhaps we'll have you two back to uh, explain what it was like scrambling around the paddock when you arrived at Monza, uh, trying to work out what was going on and, and how it was going to change the championship fight as for Hungary 2003 it will forever be remembered as the day of Fernando Alonso's first win uh, so thank you to Mark and Ted for, for revisiting this one next time we're heading back 11 years to the 1992 Monaco Grand Prix the race that marked the end of Nigel Mansell's winning streak at the start of that year but only after a bit of bad luck and some masterful and robust defence from none other than Ayrton Senna Athletic.